Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. So, now we come to a story of a storm in our Lord and Savior. And let's pray to start our time. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we look to you. We come to you with uh, concerns on our hearts. Lord, and even at this moment, we may feel that uh, we are in the midst of a storm. Sometimes we don't know which way we should turn. We may be out of answers. We may feel like we're in the darkness, and, and yet we can look at the light of the Word, the light of your Son, Jesus, who walked on water, who is the Lord of the storm, who at this very moment is praying for us and interceding for us, and who empowers us by grace through faith to rise above these circumstances. And like we'll see in our text today, Peter, with his eyes on Jesus, walks on water as well. And then we'll see how you bring us through the storm. That storms are temporary. They're, they're from this life. And we may worship you. We love you and we praise you. I pray, God, that you would just bless our hearts today as we open up the word together and pray that, that we would be changed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I had two or three different storm stories in my mind that I could use for introduction today. And one had to do with our son Matthew and his... Um, childlike obsession with tornado sirens. He loves them. He knows where they all are in the neighborhood and all over town. He sees them before we do. And the other one has to do with the testimony of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, uh, the chorus that we just sang. And so I printed off uh, Spafford's testimony from a website called staugustine.com, and I was sitting in the living room reading it to Dawn and Mackenzie, and as I read it, I could hardly read through it because I started getting choked up because it puts names and faces to, to this testimony. And Dawn says, honey, I don't know if you should read that on Sunday. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and we'll find out. <laughs> Man, it's always wise to listen to your wife, and we may find that out right now. But Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family a wife, Anna, and five children. They were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871. And in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God in his mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21, 1873, a French ocean liner was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Although Mr. Spafford had... Uh, oh, and Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters were on this ship. And Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family. But he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to solve an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join them uh, in, in Europe a few days later, and his plan was to take another ship. About four days into crossing the Atlantic, the ship collided with a powerful, iron-hulled Scottish ship. And suddenly all those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought their four children to the deck. 
She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta and prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ship slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it the 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor, <coughs> excuse me, a sailor rowing a boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales, from where she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's survivors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters, and now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife with the ship. About four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him they were, there, they were over the place where the ship and his children had gone down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul while on this journey. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So, how can someone say that? How can someone say, God gave me four daughters, God took them away, someday I'll understand. How can somebody write a hymn, it is well with my soul? And it can only happen by the grace of God as one sets their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, loving, merciful, Savior and King, the one whose voice the waves and the wind obey. Maybe we haven't had to endure such grief as Spafford did. Maybe we have, uh, but life is still a mixture of happy and sad events. We have times of peace and times of strife, and sometimes it seems like the strife and the sadness is never going to end. But the reality is that no matter how wonderful or sad life is, this very moment, we all still face the reality of the greatest storm any of us will ever face, and that's death, our own and that of our loved ones. But if we belong to Jesus, the one who walks on the water, the storms of life, though they choke us and can sap the life out of us, if we belong to Jesus, no, death does not have any hold on us. I believe the truths in this passage that we're going to read today uh, can instruct us how we can live with our eyes on Jesus. With our eyes on Jesus, we can live peacefully and confidently in the storms of life. When our eyes are off of him, we'll see with Peter later, and we'll see with the disciples, we can be fearful, we can be unsettled, and we can begin to sink. But Jesus is a good Lord and good Savior, and he will never let us out of the grip of his hand. Let's read this passage together. Matthew 14, 22 to 33, if you have your Bibles. And Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, 
beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I believe there's four truths uh, that we can pull out of this text that can help us to navigate these storms of life. And they're in your outline, actually. Um, Jesus is praying in the storm. Verses 22 to 24. Jesus is Lord of the storm. Jesus empowers us in the storm, and Jesus brings us through the storm. Let's look at verses 22 to 24. Jesus is praying in the storm. He says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. So what just happened prior to this, where he said immediately? Jesus had just miraculously fed more than 5,000 people from five loaves of fish and two, or five loaves of bread and two fish. They had just seen another miracle attesting to his divinity. Only God can do such things. But most of the people still didn't understand about him. They misunderstood Jesus and his mission. They ate and they were satisfied, but they were missing the whole point. John's account of this same series of events sheds tremendous light on this. He records the feeding of the 5,000, and then after that, he records the walking on the water uh, event. And then after that, immediately after that, John Uh, the people that Jesus had just fed are coming to him. And uh, it says here, John, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They recognized that he was a prophet, the prophet that God had promised, but they thought he had come to set up an earthly kingdom And they were ignorant of the fact that he had come to die for the sin of man and rise again, and that his kingdom was an eternal one. John goes on to say, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus goes on in John 6 to tell them that he is the bread of life, that one must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood to have eternal life. And that just through believing in him, we have eternal life. Many would turn back because of their wrong view of Jesus. They refused to believe. Jesus asked the disciples at that point if if they wanted to turn back, and Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Peter was thinking correctly about Jesus, and he knew that to know Jesus was to possess eternal life. 
Most of the people, though, had a wrong view of Jesus, and it kept them from believing to eternal life. They wanted an earthly king that would solve their earthly problems. But Jesus had come as the heavenly king to die for their sins and solve their eternal problems. We must see Jesus as the one not who just solves our earthly problems, but the one who died and rose again that we may, by faith, experience eternal life. God is the holy and awesome creator of the universe, and he created man in his image. But man rebelled against him in the Garden of Eden, and sin entered the world, and as God warned, sin brought death, spiritual and physical death, and that's all been passed down to all of us. All of us sin by nature and by choice. But God sent Jesus into the world as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. He died and he rose again. And only when we come to that point where we see that we are sinners before God and we're willing to repent or turn from our own ways, turn from our own sin, and place our faith in Christ, in Christ alone, are we forgiven and saved from our sins. Now this doesn't guarantee us a life free of problems. It guarantees us eternal life and that he will walk with us throughout all the problems we face this side of glory. So back to our setting. The day was at a close after he'd fed the 5,000. Jesus now directs the disciples to get into the boat and cross over the lake ahead of him while he dismisses the crowds. He knowingly sent the disciples into the coming storm. Now, I don't think it was that Jesus forgot to check his weather app on his iPhone. I think he knows. In fact, he is the Lord of all, the Lord of nature. He knows what's ahead of the disciples, yet he willingly sends them into it. Why would Jesus knowingly send them into a storm that could threaten their lives? And we may ask, why would he allow us to go through trials and storms that seemingly crush us? Peter learned this lesson. The disciples, all of them, learned this lesson on this day firsthand, and, and Peter later would write about it in his first epistle. The book of 1 Peter teaches us that life is a mixture of grace and suffering and glory. We've been talking about this in our home group and just had some really neat discussion around the word and, and sharing of our hearts. And we realize that our salvation does not guarantee us a life free of problems. That though God has given us his grace and we are going to share in his glory and we share even in the glory of Christ now, we live in a world where we are facing problems every day. Whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, whether it be relational, we are walking in the midst of problems and storms. But listen to what Peter says. <clears throat> and as I read this, listen to what he says about the trials that we face. First of all, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you see what, what, what awaits us and what we possess even now. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Life is really hard, but God, by his grace, has saved us and given us an inheritance that can never be touched. And the trials are meant to refine our faith so we would set our minds on Christ and not on ourselves and ultimately to bring him glory now and for all eternity. And if you're in the midst of a really horrific storm right now, I would highly recommend opening up the book of 1 Peter and just prayerfully reading through it and see yourself and your trials in the light of the incredible grace of God and his glory. So, the disciples are sent out. Jesus has sent the uh, people that he had just fed away for the day. What is he doing while the disciples are beginning to experience this storm? He is praying. We already noted that Jesus had withdrawn from the crowd because they intended to take him by force to make him king, and he withdraws to be alone with the Father in prayer. Miraculous things happen when Jesus prays. Right here in this passage, he prays, and then he proceeds to walk on water. And if you do a study of Jesus' prayer life in the book of Luke, you will see incident after incident of the miraculous things happening in concert with his prayers. Luke 3.21, at his baptism, he prays, and the heavens are opened, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and the Heavenly Father speaks. In Luke 5, he prays, and healing happens out of, flowing out of his prayer. Luke 6, he, call, he prays, and then he calls the 12 disciples to him. In Luke 9, he prays, and Peter confesses him as Christ, the Son of God. Luke 9, he prays, and then he is transfigured in a preview of his second coming glory. In Luke 11, he prays, and the disciples come and say, teach us to pray like that. And in light of that, we have this amazing uh, recording of the Lord or the disciples' prayer. Luke 22, he prays for the endurance of Peter when he said that Satan had come to desire, had desired to sift him as wheat. And Jesus prayed, I, I, I pray that your faith would not fail. And we know the end story of that, that after Peter denied Jesus three times, he would eventually be restored and become a pillar in the early church. And of course, he's an author that God used to write the Holy Scriptures. Luke 22, Jesus is in Gethsemane. He is wrestling in the shadow of the cross. And he's praying, Father, if there's any other way to do this, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he is strengthened to endure and carry out the sacrifice necessary for our redemption. So we see when Jesus prays, things happen. But he does not immediately relieve their distress. Verse 24 continues, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. John's account of this event would, would tell us that they were about three to four miles off of the shore. So they were quite a ways out. And the boat was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So they were in serious, serious trouble. And when we are in a storm, we may feel that we are a long way from Jesus and that our circumstances are beating us down, and the whole world's against us. And it may seem like the storm is lasting a long time. 
But we need to remind ourselves in that moment that Jesus is the one who controls the storm. And we need to know that in that moment we can know that Jesus is praying for us right now. You might ask, well, how do you know he's praying for me? How do you know he's praying for you right now? Consider just three passages uh, about Jesus praying. And, and one is proof that he has prayed for us in the past. Next one is that he's praying for us right this moment. And the third one is that he's going to continue to pray for us forever. The first one comes from John 17. It's his high priestly prayer. He is just about to go to the cross and he's praying for his disciples and he's praying that they would be one and he's praying that God would not take them out of the world but that he would protect them from the evil one, that God would sanctify them in the truth, that his word is truth. And then he comes to John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's every believer that's ever come to Christ. Because if we've believed the message of Jesus Christ, then we've believed what the Bible has taught about him. And it was the apostles who God used to write this word for us. So we know that he has prayed for us. Romans 8.34 tells us that he is praying for us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So right this very moment, all of us in this room, Jesus is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, he will continue to do this. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we know what it feels like when somebody says, I'm praying for you, and but to know right now Jesus is praying for us. We can take great encouragement for us. And if that's all we knew in the midst of our storm, I don't understand what's going on, but guess what? Jesus, right this moment, is interceding for me. I find that very encouraging. So no matter what we may be going through, we don't know what's happening, we can, we can say Jesus is in control. And with the song that we sang, we can say, it is well with my soul. Well, let's see what happens next. Jesus is the Lord of the storm. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In the fourth watch of the night would be between 3 and 6 a.m. So if he dismissed them right after supper, even if it was a late supper, and sent them out in the lake. They had been in this storm for about nine hours. So it was quite a while. <clears throat> he came to them walking on the sea. Now imagine being in that boat, and you're being tossed and turned, and all of a sudden you see somebody walking across the water. A dramatic entrance, no doubt. And you think that they would be comforted, right? No, they don't, they don't recognize Jesus. In fact, they misinterpreted him. They thought he was a ghost, and they were fearful for him. And the Greek word for ghost is the word from which we get phantom, the word phantom. And according to the commentator Craig Keener, the worldview of ghosts, or lilin, as they were called, included the idea that they were night spirits that were extremely dangerous to night travelers. Some thought that they were the spirits of those who drowned at sea, 
that could never descend to the realm of the dead, but wandered endlessly above the waters. So if that, maybe some of these unbiblical thoughts wandered through their minds, and you can see how that would freak them out to see somebody walking across the water, if that's how they're interpreting it. We don't know for sure what they were thinking, but we know they thought it was a ghost. And we see that their wrong view of Jesus leads to fear and spiritual paralysis. They were terrified, and fear tends to immobilize us. When we're in a storm, we don't recognize Jesus, we don't understand, we don't see his hand, we can become fearful and immobilized. And we may think, what, why is God doing this to me? Why do I have to go through this? What is God punishing me for? But praise God that he doesn't leave them or us in this state very long. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Immediately he spoke to them. His word comes to them. And even now we see the importance of the word of God coming to us. If we're struggling, our struggles and our fears should drive us into God's word and not pull back from it. Because Jesus has the answers and Jesus wants to speak to us. The words, Jesus says it is I, he uses three words, our English version of the Bible says three words, but to translate it, the language that was written in uses only two words. He said, I am. What was he saying? He says, don't be afraid, I am. In chapter 8, he referred to himself in the same way in the conversation with the religious leaders. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And this made them so mad that they were going to stone him. So what was he saying when he said that? Matthew Henry's commentary on Exodus 3 has some very interesting uh, and enlightening things to say about this, but I want to read the passage from Exodus 3. This is when Moses was talking to God. God was talking to Moses through the burning bush, and he was telling him, you need to go to my people Israel, and you need to go to Pharaoh, and you need to tell him to let my people go, and you need to go and take my people out of Egypt. And Moses did not immediately say, okay, let's go do it. You know, Moses was fearful. Moses said, well, I, I, I can't do it. And uh, so he says, well, what, what, if, um, what if they ask me who sent me to go take him out? What, what should I tell them? Who's... Let's read this passage together. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk 
and honey. Matthew uh, Henry's commentary says this about the name I am. He says that it means that he is self-existent, that he has his being of himself, that he is eternal and unchangeable and always the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is incomprehensible. We cannot by searching find him out. This name checks all bold and curious inquiries concerning God, that he is faithful and true, to all his promises, unchangeable in his word as well as in his nature. And brothers and sisters, that's who Jesus is to us. Right now, right here. So when he said, I am, he is declaring himself the God of his people, the God of the universe, the Lord of the storm. Saying, I am in control of this storm. I created this storm, and I am the Lord of the storm. Now, John records several I am statements of Jesus that shed and reveal more light on his name and his character. In John 6.35, we already had mentioned, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 8.12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 11, 25, and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> John 15, 5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is I am. We could go to any one of these passages and, and, and see that he is exactly what we need for every circumstance in life. If we're far away from him, if we've never put our faith in him, we can come and say, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life and I will come to you. I will come to the Father through you. If we are facing a sickness and, and don't know if, if we or a loved one will not make it, we can say, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. We believe in you. We know that we will never die. We will always live in you. If we're in the midst of darkness and we cannot figure out what to do, we can say, Jesus, you are the light of the world. I don't get what's going on. I need you. Please, Shine your light on this situation. 
Jesus is the great I am. He is the Lord of all. He is God in the flesh, and he came to rescue us from our sins. In that light, we, he says, do not be afraid. Our instincts in storms is to be afraid. But in Jesus, we can be encouraged and not be afraid. I am is with us. Whatever is our need, he is our all-sufficient one. So, how did the disciples respond to this declaration? And how should we respond? And here's where we see the importance of setting our eyes on Jesus. So we look at verses 28 to 31. Jesus empowers us in the storm. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, we have to give Peter a lot of credit. He's the bold one. He's the one that's willing to jump out in faith and come towards Jesus. And Jesus responds by inviting him out for the walk. When Peter fixes his eyes on Jesus, he's able to do the, the miraculous. He's able to walk on water. He's able to rise above whatever the circumstances are. And in the presence of Christ and in response to his command, he rises above his circumstances. The power wasn't in Peter. The power was in Jesus. Peter just connected into his power through faith. Faith is looking away from ourselves, trusting ourselves, and trusting Christ alone. And this is a beautiful picture of that. And we need to remember it is the grace of God that saves us. We place our faith in him, but it is through his spirit that we are regenerated, through his spirit that we are even aware that we're sinners, and through his spirit that we are made alive and able to look to him. So the power is Jesus. Peter taps into it by faith. And going back to the verse that we had read a little bit earlier, 1 Peter 5, 5, in the midst of the trials of life, talking about believers who have an amazing inheritance in heaven, he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right this moment, whatever we're going through, we are guarded by the power of God, the omnipotent power of God, the God who walked on the water. And we latch into that by faith through his grace. So Peter continues on for a little while, but his eyes begin to shift from Jesus to the storm. He begins to look at the wind and the waves, and he starts to get a little bit concerned, fearful, in fact, and fear comes crashing in on his soul, and he loses his footing, and he starts to sink. And in his, sink, in his sinking, though, he knows to look back to Jesus. Jesus immediately reaches out and took hold of him by the hand. So even in Peter's weakness, he's still secure in Christ. Even when we've come to faith in Christ, our faith is not perfect. But Christ is perfect. And he is the one that's the object of our faith. And he reaches down and he holds us by the hand. And John 10, 27 to 30 is one of my favorite passages of the scripture. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if our faith and our trust is in Christ alone, then we are secure. And if you feel like you're sinking, just reach your hand up and say, Lord, save me. And feel the strength of his hand. But notice that Jesus also challenges us. He challenges Peter. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He doesn't say, oh, you of no faith. He says, oh, you of little faith. And so in that moment, Peter, a man of faith in Christ, was wavering. But faith and doubt are diametrically opposed to each other. The word here for doubt is to be divided in two. Where faith, on the other hand, is a single-minded single focus on Jesus. Uh, James uh, alludes to this in chapter 1 when he talks about praying for wisdom. He says, but to pray in faith without doubting. So we are to, to be, have our focus single-minded on Jesus. And the text makes it clear that Peter's not perfect in his faith, and as we mentioned, neither are we. Even as new creatures in Christ possessing the Holy Spirit of God and all the blessings of Christ in us, the hope of glory, we still struggle and we still have our flesh to battle. And in the flesh, there's nothing good, Paul tells us in Romans, and so we have an ongoing battle of faith and unbelief. So we shouldn't let it surprise us when we have moments of unbelief or moments of struggle. But we also should not allow it to press us down. We should allow that moment to drive us to Christ And sometimes we may ask, how long is this going to go on? How long is this trial going to last? <clears throat> and there's hope for us because in verses 32 to 33, we see that Jesus brings us through the storm. Storms are temporary, and Jesus is worth it. Storms don't last. Storms are temporary. There still may even be, a, there may be an impairment or a physical um, uh, storm or physical uh, disability or there may be something relationally or something that just can't be fixed, but it's for this life only. And that's where Peter had said, in a, a little while, he used that phrase. He talks about our trials being a little while. Peter experienced this event in this moment, and he tells us in 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, there's that phrase, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So in light of knowing that, we can be like the disciples in the boat and it says that they worshiped him and said, truly you are the son of God. And we can say as we sang earlier, no matter what our circumstance, it is well with my soul. So, to sum it up, how then can we navigate the storms of life? And the first question I have to ask, do I know the, the one who is the Lord of the storm? The greatest storm any of us face, as I mentioned, is death, but eternal death would be being separated from God forever and experiencing his wrath. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for our sin 
and then rose again, conquering sin and death. And returned to the Father's right hand where we mentioned again that he is interceding for his church even now. But he's coming again in glory. And the way for anyone to have a relationship with him is to turn from sin or to repent and to put their faith in Christ alone to save them and to trust in him. And then this voyage of following Jesus can begin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must spend time in prayer and the word. There's going to be times where we get surprised by a storm. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more time we spend in prayer, and more time we spend uh, finding out who he is in his word, and, and we understand and we see him more clearly when we get into the storm, we will be better equipped to navigate it. Uh, I have been very blessed this, the whole time preparing this and just working through this passage, and, and I thought through these four um, points of our, our outline and kind of turned it into a prayer outline and, and I had an example of it actually uh, yesterday at work in my office. I had uh, looked at my schedule when I went in and there were, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a chiropractor and I had maybe three patients on my schedule when I went in and looked at my schedule and, about the, and we're only there from 8 to 10.30 on Saturdays and, and I got in and it was like a, a mash unit day as a chiropractic office would go. No blood or anything like that, but um, all of a sudden there were many people in my office, and there were six or seven people in the waiting room, and I can only see one person at a time, and I'm not going to cut anybody short on their time, so there's no way I'm going to get caught up. And we have three different areas where people can sit to wait, and my room's way in the back. And I leaned out the door, and I called the next patient, and I said, Don! And Don didn't get out of his chair. He said, Don! And he's like, and I see Don trying to get out of his chair. I'm thinking, oh, no, this is going to take a while. So that moment, it was just, it was, I've had many of those, and they can be stressful because I know that I don't want people to have to wait longer than they ha can, and people are in pain, and I just want to work through that. And I, during that time, I prayed through this. I prayed, Jesus, okay, you know what's going on. This isn't a surprise to you. And I can know right now that you are praying for me. Thank you. And I said, you are Lord of this moment. You are the one that's in control. And right now, I know that only through you and through your grace can I navigate this moment and minister to the people that need ministering to. So I look to you. And I know that this moment is only going to last another hour or so. Well, it worked out. We usually work till 10.30. I got done at 11.30 that morning. But that moment came and went. But I, was just, I just found just thinking through the Scripture, meditating on it, and praying it, it just settled my mind and heart in that moment that, hey, it's okay. It's okay that I'm way behind, and it's okay that, there's, that people need ministering to. And that's just one, that's not like a life-threatening moment, but Every moment that's stressful, we can come to the Lord, and he wants us to come to him. So we can do that. We can pray through that, uh, meditating on the word and then praying through it with him. 
So why don't we go ahead and we'll pray together. And I'd like you to just maybe even think of something in your life right now that, that is very stressful that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's a relationship that you're struggling with or maybe it's something that a sickness or a sickness of a loved one. And let's bring that to the Lord together. And I'm just going to pray through this, these four points. And as I do in your heart, I would encourage you as well to just pray through this with me and, and bring that burden to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we come before you. You are in control of all things. You know what we are going through. You are not surprised at all about what we're going through. In fact, in your sovereign hand, you have directed us and you have a purpose for us in the midst of this storm, this stressful situation. And we acknowledge right now that we can take great comfort that you are praying for us right now. We don't have to doubt that. And you are praying for us according to the will of God that God would be glorified, that the gospel would strengthen us and that the gospel would go in us and through us, whatever this situation is. And we acknowledge that you are the great I am. You are the Lord of the universe. You are the Lord of the storm. You are the sovereign king of all. And we acknowledge that we are weak. And even in our faith, we struggle. But it's not in us. It's in you. The power comes from you. And you are a great, omnipotent rescuer. And like Peter, we look to you now. We help us to set our eyes on you in the midst of whatever it is we're facing. And we thank you that whatever it is, it is temporary. Even if it's a lifelong issue that's not going to go away, even if it's not going to be fixed in this life, in light of eternity, in light of spending all of our eternity with you, you are worth it. And we praise you and we give you the glory and we thank you that you will deliver us and we will spend eternity with you, worshiping you, free from any problems, free from sin, free from death, free from tears. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R.